Work here with Chi Alpha, <clears throat> graduated from New Mexico State University, went to UNM for a year, so I'm not sure which one I'm more loyal to. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, what's it called? The very large, lovely, pregnant lady in the back with the beautiful eyes. And uh, this is, this for those, some of you might be extremely offended by this, but that's that's all three of us on my scooter. So, uh, you know, it's not a safety issue. I ride around the neighborhood or through the cemetery next to my house. So there's not much traffic. Everyone's not in a hurry at the cemetery right now. And so, speaking of an almost an attempt at a joke, I am an aspiring comedian. <laughs> and so. In our, in our small group leader group chat, I got called out for not being very funny, so I, I brought some new attempts tonight. <laughs> Dude, I think, I think Mike and Freddie are some of my biggest fans. I appreciate them. It gets you going. You hear it, you're like, yes, like the crowd loves it, but really it's two people. But it's okay. If the crowd's if two people are loud enough, it feels good. So I got just a few. All right. They're, they're, they're not very well-known facts. <laughs> okay, so did you know that there are more nipples than people on the earth? <laughs> so that's a lot. <laughs> okay, 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 I got another one. <laughs> did you know that nothing is ever actually on fire? Fire is on everything. You get it? You see? All right. Here's for those of you who love organic things, you're very like all natural, like did you know that the term all natural is man-made? You have been living a lie. You live, okay, all right, never mind, I'm just kidding, I got one more. All right, you know that it's cold outside when you go outside and it's cold. <laughs> okay, okay. Last one. Last, last, last one. Sorry, I thought I heard Freddie say encore, so I'll just go again. Last one. So did you know that the leading cause of burns is touching hot surfaces? <laughs> What's funny is I can tell yours is fake, but his is genuine. So I'm getting a lot of energy from both. All right. So it's going to be a... This is going to be a fun flip for a second, so just be ready. So, like I said, I have two kids. Uh, normally, on a night like tonight, uh, they should be asleep by now, but what I've learned to experience, like last week at the welcome back party, is although they should be asleep, you may see two little, thing, two little people under four feet running around naked. And so, if you happen to see one, uh, let me know. There's not much I can do, but it'd be nice to at least know that they're running around somewhere. And then I'll know that there's nothing I can do about their situation. And so, but my daughter, Charlotte, she actually likes to ask me a lot of questions. And it was on a drive like this that she began to, and I won't go into a, the elongated version of one, but it always starts with why. And I always want her to feel like I'll answer any question, although she, has, she doesn't care about the answer right now. So I'll say, she'll say, Daddy, why are you so sweaty? And I'll say, well, I was working out. And she said, well, why? And I was like, well, I'd like to be healthy. Well, why? And I said, I think it's just like being good and responsible with like my body. And she said, well, why? And I said, uh, well, like 
feel like the Lord gives us a gift if you're healthy, like, like treating it well, using it well, stewarding it well. And she's like, well, why would you do that? Like, why does he give you that gift? I'm like, well, because he's A, B, C, and D. Well, why is he like that? I'm like, Charlotte, you're getting to the point where I don't have answers for these things right now. Like, and it gets to the point where I'm like, I don't know. It's just like, why does he do that for you, Daddy? I'm like, because he wants to. Okay, I don't know. I have no idea. And so uh, what's funny is that, like I said, she doesn't really think about her questions or the answers, but they do get me to think when you actually try to answer all these whys. Now, for me, coming into college... I actually asked a limited number of questions. I would ask things like, who am I going to marry one day? Or a little more simplistic, who am I just going to sleep with next? Or how am I going to get a good job that pays me so I can do more fun things? Or how can I enjoy the most of everything around me? Or how could I have the most fun? Now this type of person, which I will fall under this category, usually finds anything they can to pass the time. They don't like still moments. The phone comes out quickly. If there's boredom, Netflix shows come on immediately. <clears throat> I'll call this person and myself the unthoughtful experiencer. The person who doesn't have many thoughts about many things. They're just really basic, pretty superficial. Like, whatever I'm going to get immediately, that's what I want to know. Now other people are very passionate and opinionated about the world. People on campuses can be extremely passionate about things like politics. Others are passionate about changing the world and being activists for good causes. And these people usually have better thought lives. They actually think about things. They analyze things. They question things, and rightfully show. so. We all should. They ask questions, hopefully, like, what's wrong with the world? How can I actually make a difference? What can make a difference? And who is to blame for all this that is wrong? I'll call these people the thoughtful activists. <clears throat> and finally, there's the studious, methodical, life's planned out kind of person. I had a little bit of a uh, sliver of this in my life before the Lord. They sacrifice a lot of fun now so they can succeed later. I had friends last year that they would study all morning, but then they could actually hang out with me in the evenings. And they had better study habits than I did because I wasn't like that at all. Tristan and Preston, I'm thinking of you guys. But usually, this type of person foregoes much now in the present so they can enjoy much later in the future. They ask questions like, how do I need to plan to get this success I long for? What will I need to do to get this lifestyle I want? What do I need to plan to succeed in this area of life? I'll call this last person, the mindful achiever. Now, questions always play a powerful role in the world. It's actually no longer sufficient or convincing to anyone to have a way of life just because you grew up that way or just because you like it. It's pretty unconvincing and changes nobody's mind. If you're too busy, too distracted, or just don't care enough to ask any of the hard questions in life, you will have weak reasonings for why you do what you do or why you think what you think. Now, why on earth does that matter to any of you? I mean, you've made it this far in life. You at least made it through high school. Or you're like Lovemore and you're getting your PhD, but he's probably the only one at the moment. So, what about questions like this? <clears throat> Why should, man, this girl that you like ever trust you with her life, with her heart, or with her body? Because it feels nice in the moment? What about if you become a raging alcoholic or you get incessantly angry at her once you're married? How can she trust that you're going to fight to be better tomorrow than you were today or fight to be better today than you were yesterday? How can she trust that you're going to do that? 
ladies, have you guys even ever asked that about men that you like or guys that you like? Or does it just feel nice to like be wanted and liked? Have you ever asked if the kind of man that you like is the kind of man you'd want to be the father of your children? Men, why should your girlfriend stay faithful to you? Why should she not sleep with whoever she wants? Because it's not right? Well, who says so? Because it's not what you want, it's what she wants. Not more important than what she wants? Or even some of us very thoughtful people with opinions about the world. The socio-political climate is more divisive than it's ever been. And so much, if I'm honest, is based on illogical train of thoughts or just contrary claims to one another. So every, for every person that says it's right to mandate vaccines, there's another one that says it's wrong. Who's right? Can you honestly say and could you logically prove to me why it's right? Who says that your version of social justice is the right one? Who says it's wrong to cancel people because they don't agree with your viewpoint? Neither side usually questions themselves, but they love questioning each other. There are a plethora of questions that one could be asked if they were confronted by a thoughtful person, and many people wouldn't have good answers to any of them. The consequence of never asking yourself questions and having solid answers to them is that when you or someone you love goes through a life-shattering event, the most you'll be able to help out is giving cliche statements like, it'll all work out. Well, how do you know that? <clears throat> Everything has a purpose. Says, says who? We were meant to be together. Well, from what vantage point are you seeing that from? You, have, you just have to push through and make it through this hard time. Well, why should I if I would just like to die? You see what I'm saying? There are a lot of questions, and I'll invite Jake up so that <clears throat> he can pray us in for tonight. But tonight, out of all the questions in the world that we could ask, that you could be asked, out of everything that someone could ask you, I have just three basic questions for, all, for the three basic categories of people I mentioned tonight. So I'll let Jake pray, and then we'll get started. All right, so our unthoughtful, our, our person like myself and today. Now, her TED Talk is something in their 20s, is in their 20s. She says that not claiming your 20s is the biggest mistake you could make in your entire life. She says that most of us, most people in the world, look at their 20s like a developmental downtime or a time to waste, a time to just do anything no matter what it costs to you. When really, according to research, it's a developmental sweet spot. 80% of life's most defining moments will happen before the age of 35. 8 out of 10 experiences and decisions that you make, uh, that make your life what it is, will happen before you're 30. Your brain in your 20s has its last major growth spurt as it develops itself and rewrites itself for adulthood. This is why when someone's over 30, they're a lot more stubborn in how they currently think how they think. Meg Jay says this, she says, I'm not discounting experimenting in your 20s. I'm discounting experimentation that isn't supposed to count. If you're doing something right now that you hope doesn't have a permanent effect on your life, then you should probably stop doing it. 
She says, if you're sleeping with that guy or girl and banking on the fact that she or you won't get pregnant or you won't contract anything you can't shake, you should probably give that up right now. Like I said, I was an, unthought, I was an unthoughtful and experiencer, and I'll give you an example of how this can actually play out. In junior college, I just wanted to have fun. I wanted to just play baseball, but I also knew I had things I wanted in my future. I had a lifestyle and a career that I wanted after this. But one day during this first year of college, I got a call from my girlfriend who was playing volleyball uh, at a college in Kansas. And she called me crying, saying that she went to the doctor for something that was concerning her. And the doctor had told her that she was six months pregnant, but that she had a miscarriage. Something that I didn't want, something I never thought would happen, something that was going to be life-altering, almost became an irreversible part of my life because I just wasn't thinking. A few years ago, while all of my family was in a big rental home for Christmas, my brother was in a recovery center because of the drinking, partying, and drug lifestyle that I brought him into in high school. And yes, he did choose it. And by choosing it, he became someone I guarantee you he never actually wanted to be. Many of these potentially life-altering situations are exactly what first-time college or, long, or however long college-goers want to have during their college experience. But is that who you want to become? Are those possible consequences things you're hoping don't happen? And therefore, someone who doesn't even care about God can even say wisely, you probably shouldn't do that if it's not something you want for the rest of your life. Do you want to become a single mom because the dad was never actually a man, so he dipped whenever things got hard? Do you want to be a dad of multiple kids with multiple women who one day are going to ask you, why doesn't daddy want to be with my mommy? Do you want to deal with this purposeless life where you look forward, the one thing you look forward to most every week is the next NBA game or the next NFL game? But my simple question for you is, does what you do with your life ultimately matter at all? Why does it matter? Like, does it even matter to anyone? Does it matter to the world if you OD on drugs? Does it matter if you marry someone you realize you'll never be happy with? Does it matter if you're ever thinking about the important things in life? Does it matter if you just skate through life, make some memories, have some great videos, pictures, scenery, and then just die? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe none of our lives really matter and have any meaning. Who's to say? Who is to say that your life has any meaning at all? Who is to say it ultimately matters at all what you do with your life? <clears throat> so on to our next person, the thoughtful activist. Like we said, some people can be big environmental activists, women's rights activists, guns rights, social justice, equal rights activists. The list could go on and on. And there was a renowned pastor, or is a renowned pastor, named Tim Keller, and he was reading of a young woman, an article that she wrote. Her name is Caroline uh, Lobin, who was caught in a dilemma that if we think about it, I think anyone who falls in this category of activists and change for the world, wants what's right for the world, may find that we're caught in it also. Caroline was an atheist and an anthropologist who came across some African societies that she was studying, and she was appalled at the way women were treated in these societies. So she decided she would promote women's rights and women's interest in them. The problem was that as an atheist, she believed that values were relative to the culture from which they were derived. And the idea that women deserve equality is actually a very Western European and American cultural value. So when she approached some of the leaders in these African countries, 
This is what they said to her. They said, don't you impose your white, individualistic, Western values on us. And this is what she said, which is very wise of her. I don't believe in God. I'm a secular person. Therefore, I had to realize that they're actually right. I have my beliefs about what is right and wrong, and that culture has their beliefs. How dare I say that that culture is wrong and mine is right? What authority do we have as Westerners to impose our concept of universal rights on the rest of humanity? Now, this is the point. Activists advocate and fight for human rights, inherent values of human beings, and other things around the world. But where does that value come from? What does this value, on what does this value depend? Who says they have this value? Who says that humans have this value? You do? <clears throat> some room of global leaders? What if the same leaders one day decided that only some people have inherent value? Who among us ought to be able to declare law that everyone is obligated to obey? The majority? What happens if the majority of the world decides to exterminate the minority? You may say that's wrong, but then we're back to square one. Who says it's wrong? You? Who says the majority can't just kill the minority? Tim Keller quotes a former law professor at Yale when he said, Why should what we think, why should what you think be something someone else is obligated to think? Without answering these questions, everything's up for grabs. But, but, people still believe that napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling other humans is depraved, and there really is such a thing as evil. But all together now, says who? So my question for any of you thoughtful activists is, you may think one thing is right and another is wrong. Says who? Now, for my mindful achievers. There was a young man in history who was the Bill Gates of his day. He had more money than many of us will ever see in a lifetime. His assets at the time would equate to having a fleet of luxury vehicles, private airplanes, impressive yachts, thriving businesses, and expansive real estate holdings. He was the greatest of all men in the East in his time. And he was also a very good man, a very kind man. Today we would look at him and think he was one of the most well-known, well-respected moral leaders in the world. But suddenly, all of the forces of catastrophe came upon him. Enemies invaded his land, lightning struck, a tornado unleashed its fury, and by the end of an afternoon, the unthinkable had happened. The world's richest man had been reduced to poverty and his ten children had been killed in a natural disaster. But, without blaming anyone, he got on his feet again to start over, and he just became disgustingly sick. <clears throat> he had boils all over his body that got infected with worms, and his eyes would swell up, among many other problems, so he had to move outside the city to what was known as the garbage dump. And there was a famous Yale graduate and famous Christian thinker named Jonathan Edwards who said this, the story of this man, Job, is the story of us all. He lost everything in one day, his family, his wealth, and his health. Most of us will experience these losses more slowly over the span of a lifetime until we find ourselves at the door of death, leaving everything behind. Now you may be mindful, intelligent, methodical, and very planned out. You have your four-year graduation track planned and hopeful internships and jobs lined up. I had that in my mind too. I'm not trying to dig on it at all. The ideal starting salary, you have that in mind. The place you'd like to live, the general area or uh, profession of work you'd like to be in, and maybe a nice person to marry along the way to make some memories. 
But despite all your plans, despite all your attempts, any perfect plan will always slowly begin to decay because it's not eternal. You will approach your final years and all that you had planned is done and it's a distant memory. Everything about to go black and some people will remember you, which is, it kind of feels nice, but ultimately you'll never know because the dark abyss of death, you're not conscious in it, so you don't, you know, people remember you, but you don't know that. My question for you mindful achievers and planners is this. What's your plan for the end? A lot of people in our young age are confident, so they say things like, well, even if death means nothing at the end, just live it up now, have all the fun I can have now, YOLO, all this ridiculous stuff, and then when that day comes, whatever, I'll face it like a champ. And it's easy to be confident in such a thought when we're young and death seems so far away. But old, once confident people who thought like that, men and women, tremble when they approach death's doorstep and they ask the question, what's next? Is it truly nothing? Has everything I lived for amounted to nothing for what's next? So what is everything you're doing and planning ultimately adding up to? A good video at your funeral? A funny statement on your tombstone? What's next? What will you have when you do lose it all? What's next when you stand at death's doorstep, whether tomorrow or whether decades from now? So as I finish up, allow me to make some appeals to you. <clears throat> we ask three questions to the unthoughtful experiencer. Good or bad, does your life ultimately matter? Why should you try to like not just live it up and have fun? Like, Does your life even have meaning? If it doesn't, why not just do anything that feels nice? To the thoughtful activist, you may think one thing is right and another wrong. Says who? And to the mindful achiever, you may have your plans in life, but what are your plans for the end? And how do your plans now help you at all? So I appeal to you that without God, life has no meaning. We are like cosmic accidents. And any... What's the right adjective? Any self-appreciating atheist would admit to you that that's all we are. Cosmic accidents, like an accidental fall. Came out of nowhere, has no meaning, may, may, may have an effect on someone or yourself, and then it's over. I appeal to you that without God, no one can claim any form of morality or right or wrong. In a world where no one person can see all things, know all things, enforce all things, there can be no ultimate right or wrong because no one can actually see what that is. No one in the world has agreed on it, not since it started and not till now, which is the problem. Without God, the idea of right and wrong is just a fictional story. And I appeal to you that without God, no matter how hard you plan, death is the end, whether tomorrow or whether decades from now. You can leave an inheritance for your children, make your little skid mark on the world, maybe have a building or company or invention named after you, but when you breathe your final breath, the screen goes blank if God isn't real. It's all nothing. Everyone gets to enjoy everything you did. Maybe someone will remember you, but like we said, it feels nice, but it doesn't really matter because the dark abyss of death has no consciousness in it anyway. You die, your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, children, and the world as a whole will move on without you. And maybe some quicker than others, some longer than others. And I appeal to all of you that without God, answers to life's toughest questions sure do sound grim and depressing. 
You may say all religions are the same, and we won't get into the definition of what a religion is right now, but that would be a fun one. But Christianity is like no other religion in the world. Other gods created people to have as servants. Jesus created people and said, I have, come to, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Other gods create people to get things from them. Jesus created people and said, I have come that you may have life and you may have it to the fullest. Other gods require you to do good so that you can be accepted. Jesus, through the gospel, says you are accepted, therefore now you should go and do good. Other gods require things from their followers that they themselves never do when you read their scriptures. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. In no other religion would God come to earth to save any of us from our choices and the consequences of them. Other cultures actually find this wildly offensive to think that God would do this. In their eyes, it's like a royal king who has everything he could ever want, jumping down into an overused porta potty toilet to retrieve his phone that he lost. Someone as great as God would never step down and stoop so low to step foot on the slums of this earth for someone as small as us. And they're right. A king would never stoop so low to jump in a porta potty for his phone but he would for his little boy or his little girl. If his own child fell in and could not get out, I know, I don't think I could think of a single father, king or no king, rich or peasant, who would ever not jump in any amount of feces to save their child. Only in Christianity do you find a God who views you like that and not a mere replaceable object like a phone. Nowhere else but in Christianity do you have a God who says that your life has meaning and therefore you should live wisely? Nowhere else is there a God who can see all things perfectly and therefore know perfectly what is right and wrong and then says, you go and be selfish no more. And nowhere else is there a God who gives us hope that when the lights go out, it's really just the blinking of an eye as we wake up to a new earth and a new universe. I appeal to you that only with Jesus is there any hope to these tough questions that I've proposed. And we want you to see that that's true. That's a claim, and I don't have, you know, I only have so long, give me a break, I don't have the longest time to unpack it, but it is a claim. And I believe that only with Jesus are there hope, is there hope to these tough questions in life. Without God, the options seem pretty grim and pretty depressing. And we want you to see that. We want you to taste and see that this God we're talking about is good. And that there is, like He is the only one that has a right to rule and lead us. <clears throat> when someone buys a new home, usually, at least I do this, unless people live there, uh, you peek through the windows because you want to get a closer look. Like pictures may not do it justice, may give you wrong impression. So you want to look through and see it for yourself. Imagine your stuff there, imagine your life in there, and see yourself in it. And so that's what we want to do this semester, is to give you a window on Thursday nights to see into God's kingdom and to see that Jesus really is all that He says He is. That He really does have these answers that we're claiming He has. And that He really does have the answers that He claims He has. So continue going to small group. Make memories together. And come to Thursday night so that we can gaze through the window of God's kingdom and see that Jesus really is all He claims to be. So I'll pray and then we'll be done. <clears throat>